Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Gabriella Hoffman, and you're listening to a brand new episode of District of Conservation. This week's theme is going to depart a little bit from what I typically would put out during election week. We're going to have two phenomenal retired game wardens, John Norris and Wayne Saunders, come on to talk about what is happening in wildlife conservation, their podcast endeavors, their past work on different TV programming, and so much more. And today we will begin with John Norris. So I also appeared on their podcast, Thin Green Line, which has hosted people who are civilians who are not former game wardens, some people who worked in that line of work, but uh, it was really cool to go on their show. I talked about it a few episodes ago and talk about my conservation work, this podcast, living in the nation's capital and just kind of surveying and analyzing what is happening federally and across different states. That was a great opportunity. And I figured I would reciprocate and bring them on to the podcast this week for you guys to learn more about them. With respect to John, he is the author of Hidden War, which is a very fascinating examination into the war on public lands and how drug cartels actually spoil and taint the environment with all their illegal operations. And I didn't know the extent to this. And since reading his book, I'm almost done. I learned a lot more about that. And John talks at length about that on this episode. But I want to give you guys a bio and explain who he is. So John Norris has a Master of Science degree from San Jose State University in Criminal Justice Administration, a Bachelor of Science degree from San Jose State University in the same discipline, and was conducted into SJSU's Justice Studies Alumni Hall of Fame in November of 2018. Hard work and diligence led John to a diverse career he held for over 26 years. Beginning in 92, he was hired as a warden for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and retired in December of 2018 as a special operations lieutenant working directly at the state level, co-developing and leading his agency's elite tactical unit, the Marijuana Enforcement Team, and developed the CDFW's first sniper unit aimed at combating the most environmentally damaging criminals working within California and impacting the nation. Throughout his years of service, he was a field training officer for new cadets, conducted statewide national and international training in firearms, defensive tactics, high-risk warrant and arrest tactics, as well as basic and advanced sniper training programs with special operations personnel from the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office. John was awarded the Governor's Medal of Valor for life-saving and leadership efforts in 2007 and led Allied Agency Dignitary Protection Details with the U.S. Secret Service during the Obama administration. Outside of work, John's hobbies and interests are diverse and creative. He is an accomplished musician, sings and plays bass guitar, and likes to challenge himself with training for and competing at the highest levels in endurance sports, including Ironman triathlons. He was the first racer in solo and success to solo and successfully finish the Baja 500 race Ironman style in 2013. And as an avid outdoorsman and conservationist, enjoys hunting all over the world. John also enjoys backpacking, skiing, photography, video production, scuba diving, and most anything involving the outdoors. Close to John's heart are the children at El Oasis. 
orphanage in Baja, Mexico. Since 2006, his charity fundraising efforts have helped the orphanage provide education, food, clothing, and shelter for all the kids there. And he also has a Thin Green Line program, I believe, on Recoil TV. He explains it more and does a lot in this space. And I figured we would start with him and get you guys up to speed with what game wardens do and this really interesting problem that is facing public lands, which you don't really hear environmentalists scream so much about uh, with the illegal drug running and cartel work that happens there. I was so astonished to find that out, and I think you'll be too, and, and maybe you can sound the alarm to your friends who frequent public lands to be weary of this or to help report instances of this wrongdoing more so and maybe encourage your state wildlife agency to adopt a similar program for you okay here is my interview with john norris check it out we are joined by john norris former california fish and wildlife game warden star on uh wild justice that used to appear on national geographic conservationist and author of hidden war so john we have been cross-pollinating i was on yours and wayne's podcast and it's right. nice that you can come on to mine and talk about kind of what's on your mind about different things. So good to be on your show, Gabby. And it was so fun to have you on our show. And, you know, all the stuff we're doing for conservation, you're all the way in the hub of it politically, you know, in the D.C. kind of hotbed, if you will, which is fantastic. Thanks for all you're doing. Um, I'm up here in Montana. You know, my co-host Wayne is in New Hampshire. And, you know, I come from the golden state of California, which is controversial on so many levels, but still has a very big wildlife resource conservation need that all those game wardens and all my brothers and sisters sisters, my, my colleagues from the past, if you will, operationally, are still fighting the fight for wildlife from a conservation standpoint as much as we can sustain that. So great to be on your show. And, um, you know, I know you've had a chance to, to, to look at Hidden War and all the different things we're doing on the conservation side as they affect not only my old home state of California, but really the country. So great to be here and look forward to talking about anything you want to dive into. Absolutely. Why don't you start about what led you to become a game warden? And then we'll talk about the book as well. I think people will be really interested to hear about your findings. Cool. Um, the whole game warden history for me was pretty non-traditional. Like if you talk to my, if you talk to Wayne Saunders, my co-host that you know well from our Warden's Watch and Ben Green Line podcast, um, like Wayne and like all the other guys and gals I came up with, you know, in the Fish and Wildlife Academy, and I'm going to date myself because this was 1992 when I started the Fish and Game Academy in Napa Valley College in California. I had never met a game warden until college. You know, I grew up hunting and fishing. My grandfather was career Navy, hardcore conservationist, uh, settled up here in Northwestern Montana to be in a, tr just a hardcore hunting and fishing and mountain state. Um, I, I, my dad and his eight siblings, you know, kind of followed in that suit. They all, they all hunted. They all were anglers, um, ethical, legal conservation. I mean, that meat basically provided good protein for my entire family and all my relatives for, for every year. So I, I passed hunter safety, like at nine years old, I was hunting waterfowl with my dad at, at nine and a half, 10 years old. Uh, but I never met a game more in all those years growing up and hunting in California, which is really weird, but it just never happened. And then when I was in college, I was actually an engineering major in an impacted program in San Jose state because um, I like to be creative and work with hydro and waterways and stuff like that. And I um, was going along in my first year of that college program and was on a backpacking trip with my best friend growing up and Baja race teammate, Jeff Moore, and one pack horse in the middle of winter break over Christmas in Henry Coast State Park, way into the backcountry with nobody in the park. No one goes in the middle of winter. We were just a bunch of dumb college kids getting soaking wet, you know, that type of thing, but having a great time. And who comes upon us but a game warden? 
<laughs> thinking we were deer poachers in Henry Coast State Park because they had monster blacktail mule deer in that park. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of poaching in that park, obviously, for guys trying to get illegal trophies out of season. When this guy realized we were just a couple of college kids out there trying to adventure and backpack and disconnect from finals in college, he realized we were no harm. But I kept him there for two hours, bending his ear like, what do you do? You come in a green truck, you're in a four-wheel drive, you come creeping down on us. We're 13 miles into the backcountry from another living being, and you're just on your own, no backup, and you are basically out here being kind of the cowboy wildlife ranger. What, what is this job? And so I was, I was completely overwhelmed. I mean, you know, the light bulb went off, the, the switch kind of flipped inside me. Jeff realized, oh, we got a problem. What's going on? I go, I'm doing the wrong job. I'm in the wrong program in college. That's exactly what I need to be doing. And so I changed my major immediately on winter break, went into criminal justice. Um, and then just, it was all, you know, vapor trail behind me at that point. Um, and then I got hired in 1992 to join the Academy. One of the four civilian guys coming in and started a great career in Southern California. And then eventually back in my hometown area of Silicon Valley for the pretty much the duration. Yeah. And during your tenure, and I'll bring up the book for everyone watching, uh, you were able to be a part of one of the first METs, which I believe is the marijuana enforcement team. Uh, yep. and in your book, so far, I've been enjoying it and I will complete it very soon, but I, I understand the gist of it and I wanted to read it to, to ask you more about it, of course. Um, but it's a sure. very fascinating book. And like you, I'm also a California native. And I often thought the cartels, what you describe about in the book and just other drug ringers, um, I thought it was just the cartels at the border. And I didn't know the extent um, through your findings and through the MET that all these different cartels or uh drug sellers and other um, bad actors would go to public lands and defile pristine trout streams, other natural elements uh, to, to partake in their crimes, to especially engage in the marijuana trade and another illicit drug trade. And uh, it's just fascinating. And I think obviously, and I remember uh, you caught the attention of Joe Rogan, uh, the famous podcaster and host, and you were on his show right. uh, last year to talk about this and your book has gotten a lot of notice. Uh, so speak to that, speak to kind of that and, um, I know some people are like, well, marijuana, like, does it relate to like decriminalization or not decriminalization of it? And I think it's separate from the issue of whether you decrim want to decriminalize it or not. I think that's what some people listening might want to know. But um, it's just kind of separate from uh, that kind of political debate. But it's more so the illicit drug trade. But talk about that program, uh, how it's been piloted, have other states adopted it and kind of your findings from the book as it relates to that. Yeah. And you just, you just hit it on the head, uh, Gabby, when you said, you know, does this lead to decriminalization? You know, cause people think marijuana it's legal in 11 States, give or take with medicinal use, some recreational use, like we just did in California through prop 64 and other uh, medicinal laws. Um, this story and what hidden war goes into people see the marijuana leaf on the front of the book cover and immediately they think it's an anti-cannabis book mm -hmm. and something we need, as you know, when you dive into the book, it's not that at all. I mean, no. in California, we're a pro-regulated state, and as the California Department of Fish and Wildlife now is tasked with being one of the main premier environmental compliance regulators of the legitimate cannabis industry, and that's been an overwhelmingly that's been an overwhelming challenge for game wardens in California to where over a quarter, if not more, of our force we have about 80 officers out of 400, give or take, because um, I might be a little off on the numbers, dedicated to just cannabis enforcement, not only the tactical unit. The, the marijuana enforcement team that I co-founded and supervised, but other other watershed regulation, marijuana permitting teams, 
all of that has to be taken with a grain of salt when you look at the fight we are fighting, everybody is against. So if you're looking at pro-regulation, doing it right, you're not destroying the environment, you're not stealing water you shouldn't take, you're not using EPA-banned toxics or pesticides to grow and process cannabis for the recreational or the medicinal market, whether it's legal in your state or not, nobody wants a poison product for cannabis users. And what we're finding and what I was really lucky in, as you, as you saw in the book, I mean, we've even been termed by the legitimate cannabis industry and the growers in like the Emerald Triangle that everybody knows worldwide as being some of the premier cannabis producers in California of calling the Met team the Earth Warriors. That was an unorthodox name, you know, from some growers that kind of coined that when they got to know what our team was doing, but I'll take it. I think it's uh, complimentary to showing that legitimate cannabis is unified with anti-cannabis, you know, sentiments, regardless of where you sit throughout the nation. But the bottom line is nobody wants to see these drug cartels out of Mexico destroying our environment, polluting trout, wildlife streams, drinking water killing lots of wildlife in their growth sites and even worse yet from a public safety standpoint the reason we built the dedicated team to fight these guys head on and not focus on anything else in california for the met was because the epa banned poisons that these cartel growers have to import and smuggle illegally from mexico because they're not available in the u.s they were banned by the epa over 20 years ago because they are so toxic and so deadly insecticide, rodenticides that have nerve agents in them that were used, some of the same chemicals the Nazis used for their bioweapons in World War II. This stuff is nasty. And this stuff is put on the cannabis to keep animals and everything else off of it, but they don't wash it off. These growers aren't, you know, public safety conscious, definitely for health and human safety. So this stuff stays on the product and goes into the black market where you're at in the DC corridor, the Chicago, New York, the Eastern seaboard, the Midwest, all over the West Coast because it's very potent cannabis. It's very cheap to get. So with a thriving black market of cannabis right now nationwide, even in California where we've regulated, we have not helped through our regulation process as it's drafted and scripted. We have not stopped the black market. We've actually enhanced it. And other states that are starting to regulate through traditional methods in the Midwest especially are having the same problem. They are seeing cartels going on wildlife refuges, public lands, uh, like we talk about in the book, and then also private lands. Like, you know, from being from California, there's a whole lot of private, pristine wildlife country that are cattle ranches, or they're deer hunting clubs, or they're a bass fishery. And they aren't open to the public, but they have a thriving wildlife resource that benefits everything around it. The cartels in California are going into those areas just as much as they are public lands as well. Um, so being able to develop this team um, and be part of that toward the end of my career was definitely, I think, the highlight because I can honestly say I've never felt like we made a bigger environmental protection dent than when we attacked this particular issue. And because these guys are so dangerous, they're heavily armed sometimes, we know the history of violence that the drug cartels you know, propagate all over Mexico. It's all over Instagram that you and I follow. It's all over Fox News. It's all over CNN News. I mean, it's just, this is something both sides of the political spectrum agree is not a good thing. I mean, there's a level of you know real evil stuff going on here because of the anti-sentiment against people and wildlife. And these guys are violent. I mean, we've been involved in six gunfights with cartel gunmen. Um, the first one in 2005, which I referenced in Hidden War, as you know, but really going in depth in my first book, In the Woods, Chapter 2, was when we were ambushed above the Silicon Valley, um, above the affluent city of Los Gatos, literally in eyesight of eBay, Google, Facebook headquarters. And we're getting in a gunfight, and my partner, Warden, is shot. 
through both legs with an AK-47 and almost dies from bleeding out. And by the good graces, he survived that. But yeah. we were, we knew at that point, Gab, that we were ill-equipped to deal with this problem as game wardens. The sheriff's office didn't have enough personnel. We were kind of ad hoc as we were doing it. And it eventually led to the Met being formed and, and game wardens taking it on as a priority. And, and now we're doing a, a more effective job and none of us have been hurt, thank God, with what we've experienced. But the violence continues daily. Um, I'm in touch with my the team leader that replaced me and, and the guys on the team. And through COVID, um, you know, I know you and I and, and Wayne talked about the, the, the changes as COVID affects wildlife resources, regulation, anglers and hunters all over the country. Same problem. Um, the cartels have gone unchecked through COVID largely because of the safety protocol we have in contacting them and not arresting them and not going hands on on because of the exposure these guys could have because they've been all over the country and they've been in Mexico. We don't know. Um, so the cartels have seen that as an opportunity and all of 2020 has been absolutely off the hook for black market cannabis production with these poisons put on it, methamphetamine production, fentanyl. Um, we're also learning now um, from uh, you know high-level sources and allies in the, in the Drug Enforcement Administration that prescription narcotic drugs that look like a pharmaceutical that you would get prescribed for are being made in these dirty labs where the doses are so inconsistent, where one pill could be like a prescription painkiller and a young adult ingesting this on the black market might be fine. And then they could take the very next pill in the bottle and die within minutes because the dose is five times what it should be. That's another thing the cartels are jumping into. Um, the human trafficking uh, issue that's so hot right now, politically, as we go into the election next week, much of the human trafficking is being run by these same cartels that grow tainted weed that produce methamphetamine, that run guns, that traffic in humans and kids. It's all one commercial enterprise that are capitalizing off different levels, different times of the year. So when we attack it from an environmental standpoint, we're really attacking a bigger issue that affects the whole country, regardless of where you sit on the cannabis issue. Yeah, it's very full-fledged, and I'm going to encourage people to check out the book. I'll include uh, in the show notes where people can buy the book, because it is a really fascinating, not too difficult of a read, a book, you could read it within a few days time if you're busy, but if you dive into it, you'll be able to obviously extrapolate a lot of very fascinating stuff. And I'm looking forward to completing it. Uh, but so far, what I've read about just your stories and your uh, experience is just so scary. And you don't really see much of environmentalists taking a stand on this. They they try to engage in, they more so engage in, excuse me, superfluous causes that actually detracts from wildlife conservation and other uh, important subjects. So I would hope that environmentalist organizations do work with groups like the Met uh, embedded within the wildlife agency, but I haven't heard of any such outrage by them. They're very selective on what cause uh, constitutes uh, attention. Yeah, and it, it really helps. And I really appreciate you taking some time to discuss it because it just opens some door of awareness. I mean, before you started to dive into the book, even though you knew my background and we've had some great conversations and we're doing some great work together, even you didn't really know the depth of, oh my gosh, what is really going on with these cartels? Why is this an issue? Uh, it's just knowledge is power. Since the first book 11 years ago, and all the TV we did with the Wild Justice TV show, you mentioned the Game One Reality Show and Patriot Profiles documentaries, investigative news with CNN to Fox to NBC to everybody in between. Ten years later, when we launched Hidden War at the at the NRA Annual last April uh, in Indianapolis, and uh, Colonel Walvernorth was a big proponent of getting that book to that show to drop it because we knew we'd have a lot of um, receptive uh, viewers, if you will, and readers. But more importantly, we'd be over on the East Coast where I had not been with the first book. And 
Gabrielle, it was crazy. 11 years after the first book and as much outreach as we'd done, almost every book I was signing for anybody that came to the booth or stopped by the NRA spot would look at this and go, Lieutenant, I had no idea this was going on in our country today. I had no idea that marijuana was such an issue with this particular group. And I said, that's why we named it the Hidden War, sir or ma'am. Honestly, it's one of those things that gets kind of underrepresented because we have so many hot button issues, right? Especially now with COVID, with the election, with the left and the right, you know, the fringe elements fighting like crazy. So this is one that affects us all. I appreciate you putting it out there. It's one of many issues we got to deal with, but from a conservation standpoint that you and I both love, we love our wildlife species. It is just so disgusting and enraging to see what we see in these grow sites. And one thing, as you know, from the book is our publishing group, Caribou, was really cool to put a lot of color photos in the middle and pepper a lot of photos throughout this book. So you get a color section in the middle that graphically shows these poisons. It shows dead mountains, lions that are protected in, in California, red fox, some of the punji pits, some of the armed, you know, camouflaged gunmen with AK-47s. Uh, the snare traps, um, our canines in action. It's just, it's mind blowing to think that this element of, of battle is going on in, on domestic soil and especially Silicon Valley and everywhere in the Golden State and 25 other states. So um, appreciate people reading it. It is available on Audible. I was able to read for the Audible version. So there's a little passionate narration in there. Um, if people don't like to, you know, don't have the time to read it, I mean, we're podcasting and we're listening. So, and if anyone has questions, or comments, just hit me up on, on Instagram at John Norris and direct message me or email me because I'm answering questions on this daily to this day. And we're educating our youth, right? We're talking to high schools. We're talking to young Americans that are going to use cannabis or not. And they, they just want to, you know, not be complicit in a criminal enterprise. And certainly they don't want to ingest a toxic poison that can kill them. And that's the first thing we want to see for any cannabis user is not dealing with this stuff for their safety. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. And another thing you were extremely passionate about is obviously wildlife conservation. We've talked at length uh, online and offline and previously on your podcast about big game species. And actually, just before we recorded the Department of Interior, I mean, they've been teasing this for a little bit, but uh, they, in line with uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service, announced that they will be going through with recommending the full delisting of the lower 48 gray wolf, which I know is a big predator in Montana where you reside. And I've yep. heard from people on the ground about the need for the species to be managed. And it hasn't just come about just recently. There's actually been an active management system in play for wolves uh, since the early 2000s. People don't know that there is an active management system and their determination is that the wolf has fully recovered. It doesn't warrant having threatened protections anymore because it's at healthy numbers. And a lot of people see this as a success for conservation. Many construe decimation with uh, delisting efforts. They say that if you take the wolf off the list, it's going to become imperiled. It's going to be threatened and endangered once again, um, all the while dismissing the fact that states, local entities, tribes have a rightful place uh, in concert with the federal government to more so manage or take this species into question. So what are your thoughts on uh, this update and just kind of big game management, especially when it comes to grizzlies and other species in Montana, because Montana is very different from the East Coast, very different even from California. But this is an interesting update. And I think former game wardens like yourself and other wildlife enthusiasts uh, would be pressed to know exactly what goes on to, into this thinking and, and why this species needs to be managed. Yeah, it's a great, great topic. Um, I was very, um, I was very happy to see this delisting statute come about, and um, I appreciate you sending it over to me to get the the, the latest update. I know it's been brewing. Um, 
this is one of those really passionate emotional issues, especially for non-hunters when they think of the wolf. The wolf is a majestic, stoic predator. I love seeing him in the wild. You rarely do. I have nothing but respect for that magnificent animal, just like the mountain lion in California. But in order to keep the wolf population thriving and balanced with every other wildlife species out there for the sake of everybody that does what that, that loves wildlife. And I think everybody does, whether you hunt or not, whether you're a preservationist or conservationist, the wolf needs to be regulated just like mountain lions need to be regulated, just like elk need to be regulated, just like deer need to be regulated in upland birds and angling. Right. So I'm glad to see this. I know from personal experience up here in Montana, where we have a thriving wolf population, especially up here in Northwest Montana, the Yak Wilderness, the Cabinet Mountains, all this area where we have the grizzly contingent going on. And up until recently, they were not huntable or managed, and they have been now for several years. And I can say, since they have been managed, and since we do hunt them ethically and legally and balanced here in Montana, and deal with them on a depredation issue because they are hammering if overpopulated. They're taking out elk herds, they're taking out mule deer and uh, white-tailed deer herds, and they're taking out domestic cattle on our cattle ranches up here in the high country where because they were not managed, they could not be even minimally hunted. And now that they have been up here, are we really making a big dent as far as reducing the numbers of wolves? No, we're not. We're not in any way. But we are seeing our white populations come back in certain areas. Personally, I can tell you right now, our whitetail and uh, elk rifle season opener started Saturday, a few days ago, a week ago, Saturday. I've been out almost every day around outreach business like I'm doing with you right now. And areas that I would never see a vital deer population going on are finally starting to come back because of this limited and very carefully regulated hunting um, opportunity and management opportunity in northern montana so it does help it helps everything and if you don't believe in it because you don't want to see a wolf be harvested you certainly don't have to participate but just from a from a logical standpoint of conservation management and you look at the science it really does need to happen for the benefit of the wolf not just for the other species if these things get overpopulated and start hammering too much domestic livestock and hitting too many um, other wildlife species they're going to be depredated in mass numbers from an organization like fish and wildlife and parks rather than give hunters an opportunity that are out there more often they're going to see them in a more natural environment they can take them humanely and ethically um, they can put money into the system we can analyze those animals that are harvested we can necropsy them we can look at things for disease we can look at diet we can look at all these different things to find out what we need to do to better regulate these animals so that the wolf population always thrives and stays balanced. So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to see it. All of us up here in, in, in Montana and all the other states that are on the conservation element are happy to see it as well because these, timber, these wolves are working their way down into states like Washington, Idaho. Um, we've even had some up in the northeastern fringes of California when I was retiring, and we have a pop, a small population that's kind of moving around, and they've been named, and they're 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 documented, and they're drifting state to state. And how is that population going to impact, you know, a a very dwindling black-tailed deer herd or domestic livestock in urbanized areas like Northern California is starting to have? So. Um, Basically, you know, without beating beating the horse too much, um, this is a good thing for conservation. It's a thing that needs to be out there, uh, and I'm glad to see it happening. And, and conservationists and in, in, in management, especially with the agencies, including the game wardens I work with closely up here now in Montana, are uh, are encouraged to see it. Yeah, and I think one implication that a lot of kind of non endemic uh, consumptive users 
don't understand. And I mean, personally, I don't think I could ever harvest a wolf myself, but I, I believe in the management of it. I probably coyote management is something I would look into. I have a friend in West Virginia who's like, I need, I want help to manage coyotes. Would you help me? And I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll come. That would be Go great. <laughs> yeah. do that. Um, but it's, you know, personally, I wouldn't do that, you know, in early in my hunting career. Um, I don't think I would do it in, in any case, not because like I'm afraid to, but I just don't see a personal need to do it. I don't think I would eat it. The pelt would be kind of cool to harvest and procure. But I think also what people mix, uh, miss out in the in their examination of this and why a lot of people, why a lot of scientists and biologists advocate for this, even if they don't necessarily support doing it themselves, I think it's also to thin out aggressive members of different herds. We see this with grizzly bears because I have never heard of so much bear mortality for grizzly bears. I keep tabs on what's going on because I have clients in Montana and other friends that live there. And the bear mortality rate of fish and wildlife um, game wardens having to kill those bears because they're being aggressive, they're attacking livestock, they're attacking black bears, they're attacking fellow grizzly bears. Uh, the bear mortality has been higher than what that proposed bear hunt, grizzly bear hunt, was supposed to be. I think it was um, two females were expected and then the hunt would be canceled or like up to 23, which seems very impossible to do because to harvest 23 grizzly bears, they're very elusive. They're not going to be readily huntable. Um, they're pretty tricky and smart. But I think if they would have gone with the hunt that was legally shut down, um, we would have had fewer bear mortalities. We'd have these problem bears taken out of the equation and other bears uh, subsisting and, and being fine. So I think people forget that you'll see more mortality of the species in question if there's not a carefully managed, highly regulated hunt to, to do so. Yeah, that is really well said. That is really well said on the grizzly issue because again, I mean, we're talking about wolves, but I'm in the hotbed of, of you know inland grizzly issues as well. And ha having Glacier Park so close to where I'm at here and the Flathead Valley and having grizzlies in the Yak and in the Cabinet Mountains and a lot of our problem grizzly bears that are threatening people in the national park or they're getting into, you know, they're threatening livestock, they're getting too close to, to people on that borderline threat issue, they're getting moved. If they're not dispatched, they're getting moved right into the cabinets, right into the yak. And what are hunters doing and, and, and people enjoying the outdoors in these remote, pristine areas near the Canadian border? They're running into problem grizzlies and there are we're having grizzly attacks and we're having people that are ill-equipped to deal with a grizzly attack because they just haven't had that exposure. And this bear is not scared of people. This bear has been in a national park. This bear is used to kind of running the show. So. You're right. Um, when you said you have specific bears that show a sign of aggression or that are a standout problem bear, if you will, that's exactly how the species kind of works. I noticed it with the black bear population in California, my years of being a game warden in Cali. Um, we dealt with some very aggressive black bears that we had to take out and dispatch for public safety that were attacking Boy Scouts through their tents, uh, you know, on, on, a, on a park adventure or an Eagle Scout mission, if you will, in the San Bernardino National Forest. I was actually seeing things like that early in my career. And was it every bear that aggressive? Absolutely not. It was really one small percentage animal out of, out of a bunch. But, but one problem animal with that type of power and that type of aggressiveness can do a lot of damage to people and to livestock, as you know, or pets. Um, so the grizzly, just like the wolf, needs to be managed, needs to be regulated. And I agree with you. They're very elusive. And any time when I think of uh, grizzly or brown bear hunting on inland Alaska, where I've part, you know I've been involved in those hunts, or a Fognac Island for the big Kodiak Island bears, and I look at those bear populations, and I look at how they're hunted, and I look at how successful the hunters are, and the money and the time and the management resource goes into doing one of those hunts, 
And all of those funds and how well balanced those inland and those coastal island bears are regulated, it's just a win-win across the board for the bear population. Um, they're less invasive to people. People are a lot safer because they're not running into as many grizzly encounters. And the bears are getting regulated just like the wolves are to some level where hunters can take a very limited amount of them. The population's always in check through research every year. And honestly, I haven't seen herds other than, you know, you're talking about our wolves and then our grizzly bears more carefully regulated and more carefully studied right now because they're so controversial to what the general public sees in those two magnificent animals. So, and I agree with you, there's hunting these animals isn't for everybody. And we're not saying that, oh, you know, if you're a hunter, go shoot a grizzly bear, go for that hunt or go for a timberwolf hunt. I like you, I'm a game warden. I've hunted all over the world as a, an, uh, an active conservationist. But people ask me, or when are you going to do a mountain lion hunt in Montana? And I said, you know, I may never do that mountain lion hunt in Montana. Like, how can you not do that? You're from California where they were protected. You couldn't hunt them since 1992 and you dealt with mountain lion problems your whole career. And you know, my response, Gabby, is, yeah, that's exactly why I don't know that I'll hunt a mountain lion in, in Montana because I've had to dispatch four of them <laughs> at work as a game warden that were in chicken coops, that were charging people on porches that had, you know, attacked or, you know, attacked a, a woman and her, and her, you know, tribe of Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts that were on trail runs, you know, in Southern California. And part of having to depredate that animal that was now known to have killed a human in a state park. And I love and appreciate and respect the cat. You know, the cat is just doing what the cat does. The cat is a, a very elusive, um, very stoic predator that happens to be in a highly populated state and the cat didn't do anything wrong and we didn't do anything wrong. We just clashed from two different worlds of how we both coexist. And that's the issue we're going to continue to run into as we continue to urbanize and expand and infringe upon our, our, our green open spaces. We're going to have more of these encounters and management for these animals is going to be even more critical. So, um, whether you believe in it or not, it, it is necessary. And, and, and you hit it on the head when you said that management is there, but it's, you know, you're not going to want to hunt a wolf and I'm not going to probably hunt a mountain lion. And that's okay. As long as they're getting regulated and they're out there and they're thriving in a balanced way. Absolutely. We've covered so much ground here on the podcast today, John, where can people mm -hmm. follow your musings, connect with you, engage with you and learn more about the book? bet. Um, really easy. Up on Instagram, I'm John Norris, J-O-H-N-N-O-R-E-S, no spaces. Um, you can follow me that same on Facebook. My um, email is trailblazer413 at yahoo.com. You can always go to my website and find all this stuff and links and what we're doing with outreach and podcasts and TV developments and everything for the Conservation Thin Green Line and our podcast at johnnorris.com. And certainly direct message me on Instagram or email me anytime with questions or comments. And um, we're, uh, we're glad to help any way we can for the sake of the nation. and uh, all. If you liked this podcast with John, make sure to check out some past episodes. If you're brand new here, go comb through some past episodes, listen to some interviews I've conducted with Katie Pavlich, Governor Christy Nome. Those are actually two of my best performing podcasts ever since I started the show two years ago. And it's really cool that women guests have done the most impressive in terms of listenership. So Go check out some past episodes to get a feel for us, to learn more about us, and to get a feel for us. And make sure you are listening and subscribed if you haven't already, because those will go a long way. And also just engage with us. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement. 
If you feel inclined, leave us some reviews on Apple Podcasts because that's a great barometer for me to see if we are reaching as many people as I believe we're reaching. We continue to grow our listenership, which I'm so grateful for. I am so honored and grateful that all of you have checked out this program, whether you're new, a longtime listener, what have you. It is really great to see this podcast reaching more hearts and minds. But yeah, feel free to leave some reviews. You could do that in Apple. I'll leave the link for you to be able to go ahead and do that. Tomorrow, we're going to have Lieutenant Wayne Saunders on. He is John's co-host on the Thin Green Line podcast. And John also does a little bit of co-hosting responsibilities with him on his Warden's Watch podcast. So we're going to go to the Northeast, travel to the Northeast. We went to the West with John. He's in Montana, formerly of California. We're going to go to New England, to New Hampshire specifically, and visit with Wayne and talk about his time on Animal Planet's Northwoods Law, what he does, his educational work, inspiring new generations of hunters and anglers, and so much more. You don't want to miss our Election Day special, where we don't really go so much into politics. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. Make sure you're subscribed. Tell your friends to subscribe, and stay tuned for more episodes.